0: Thank you, thank you so much um, for the invitation to speak and for that exceedingly long and somewhat embarrassing introduction. Um, and I'm truly delighted to be here, especially to, to be presenting to such an interdisciplinary audience. Um, and in this talk, what I'd like to do is to first give an overview of what we've traditionally known in our field as intergroup contact theory and to try to give you at least some insights about um, more recent developments in this line of work and some of the ways in which we might push this work further in exciting and new research directions. So, Um, Overall, the basic premise of contact theory is that contact between groups can be an effective tool for reducing prejudice and uh, enhancing mutual understanding and tolerance between groups. And I apologize. I'm not a big fan of the microphone. So um, if I kind of flip in and out, um, I apologize for that in advance. And so even though there's this basic premise of intergroup contact-reducing prejudice, there's also been some caveats such that in order to maximize positive outcomes from contact, there are a few optimal conditions that we should attempt to establish within the contact situation in order to maximize that potential. And these include things such as establishing equal status between the groups, that even though the groups may have different statuses within the larger society, that they're brought together as equals within the contact situation, Institutional support, that the contact and the equal status nature of that contact is supported by the authorities of the institution, and also that the groups work together under conditions of cooperation and with common goals. Now, while these might seem like fairly basic principles, there's actually been a good deal of debate over the last several decades regarding contact's effects. So, for example, some people have proposed that contact may actually increase prejudice, whereas others have proposed that it might be effective for reducing prejudice in some contexts, but not necessarily in others. And yet other people have proposed that contact might increase prejudice. And so conclusively, we don't really have a good sense of what this research literature is telling us overall. So what we... Feel we need is additional research to try to assess these overall effects of intergroup contact from a range of fields. That is, overall, what happens when members of different groups interact with each other? Do we tend to observe positive outcomes, negative outcomes, or perhaps end up somewhere in between? And also to try to test the degree to which contact effects are consistent or different across the context that we might be looking at. So in collaboration with Thomas Pettigrew, I've been conducting what's called a meta-analysis of research on intergroup contact. And for those of you who may not be familiar with meta-analytic techniques, A meta-analysis is basically a quantitative integration of research studies where you try to find every single study ever conducted on a particular topic and you statistically pool the results to look at the overall patterns of effects. And then you can also code those research studies themselves for additional factors or additional variables that might enhance or inhibit those effects or might moderate those effects in some way. And so our analysis is focused on the effects of intergroup contact on reducing prejudice. And for our analysis, we found a total of 515 studies uh, that include 713 independent samples gathered between the 1940s and the year 2000. They include responses from slightly over 250,000 participants in 38 different countries. These studies come from a wide range of academic disciplines, and they include contact studies with people from different age groups, different target groups, and contact in many different types of settings. And what I also wish to clarify is that for inclusion in our analysis, the data in these studies had to be assessed at the level of individuals, so that we can actually examine changes in prejudice in relation to individuals' contact experiences. And so we're rep- representing these effects between contact and prejudice as correlations, or the R correlation coefficient, where greater contact is associated with lower levels of intergroup prejudice. And in looking at these effects, we're really interested in focusing on three general questions. First of all, does intergroup contact generally seem to reduce intergroup prejudice? How consistent are contact effects? Or are there certain factors that make those effects stronger or weaker? And also to consider more of these process variables, such as how or why contact might be effective in reducing prejudice. So to address our first general question of does contact reduce prejudice, our general answer to that general question appears to be yes. That overall, greater levels of intergroup contact tend to be associated with lower levels of intergroup prejudice. And this graph illustrates our fi- this finding in our data, and so I just want to give you a brief sense of what you're actually looking at here. So each of the dots in this graph represents a single contact study, actually better said, a single sample of participants who were in a contact study. For dots that appear at that zero point, on the x-axis on the bottom, that basically is showing that there was no meaningful relationship between contact and prejudice for that study. But those that appear between 0 and the negative 0.5 on the scale are basically showing that greater contact is associated with lower levels of intergroup prejudice. So it's a negative correlation, or that's why the numbers here are negative, because it's suggesting that contact and prejudice are moving in opposite directions. So it's that greater contact is associated with less prejudice. Does that make sense before I go on? Great. All right. So, um, so here, at least from our perspective, lower numbers are good because they seem to be representing this idea that contact has the potential to reduce prejudice. And you can see that based on the distribution of cases in our analysis, that actually most of the research studies that we found from searching for several years actually show this relationship, suggesting that greater levels of contact are associated with lower levels of intergroup prejudice. And the average for these cases is represented by that line in the middle, by the correlation coefficient of negative 0.21. So it's a relatively modest correlation in terms of magnitude, but it's a highly significant effect, not surprising given the size of the sample that we're dealing with, but more importantly, it's also a relatively consistent effect that just becomes a bit stronger or weaker depending on other characteristics of the studies. And I'll be sharing some of those characteristics with you in a moment. But I also wanted to mention um, that we do see some studies near the zero point or actually in the positive direction. So this is suggesting that there are at least a few cases in which contact did not reduce prejudice or in which contact might have actually increased prejudice. Um, And we're continuing to do some analyses of those particular cases to see if we can figure out any threads or themes that seem to emerge from them. But this suggests at a more general level to us that at the very least we need to think really carefully about how contact programs are implemented so that we can maximize our chances of reducing prejudice when groups actually do come into contact. Now before I go ahead and describe more of our findings in this analysis, I first want to just give you a sample graph so that you'll know how to interpret the data that you'll be looking at for the rest of the talk. So basically the overall effect depicted in this graph is pretty much the same effect as what I showed in the previous slide. This bar represents that mean effect of negative 0.21, which was represented—oops, right, whoa, wrong way, sorry—which was represented by that line in the middle of the distribution. Um, so I'm going to be basically depicting, for most of the rest of the talk, in these sorts of slides, um, where a zero is basically representing this idea that there's no meaningful relationship between contact and prejudice. Negative scores are representing the idea that contact is associated with lower prejudice, and higher scores would represent the idea that contact is associated with greater degrees of prejudice. Um, All right, so one of the first things that we wanted to do was to look at the types of contact that people have to see whether that makes any difference in reducing prejudice or predicting prejudice. And we find that the types of contact really do make a difference. So compared to the general types of contact that we've seen before, One of the things that we see is that when the contact is in the form of friendships or close relationships across group boundaries, we start to see somewhat stronger effects emerging in the relationship between contact and prejudice. So this finding is just a simple important reminder that not all forms of contact are equal and that more superficial forms of contact may actually be pretty unlikely to change our attitudes and it's likely to be the more meaningful or close relationships that we're able to cultivate across group boundaries that are more likely to actually promote the reductions in prejudice we might hope for. Um, And we've done some additional analyses regarding the issue of cross group friendships that I'd be happy to expand on later, I just didn't have time in the talk. so now we can also think about contact in terms of those optimal conditions of the contact situation that I briefly described, such as establishing equal status between groups, having institutional support, and cooperation. And we would have liked to address this issue by coding each of our studies for each of all ports conditions, but we actually encountered a couple of problems when we tried to do that. The first thing that we found was virtually m- most of the studies in the analysis provided virtually no information whatsoever about the contact that occurred. They informed us that contact happened. We know that there was a measure of contact, but we don't know what the groups actually did with each other when they interacted with each other. So we weren't able to actually code for the content of the interactions. Was it working on a task together? Was it self-disclosure? Was it discussing difficult issues? We actually have no idea for the most part what the content of those interactions happened to be. At the same time, for those cases that did report some information about the interaction itself, those optimal conditions were oftentimes blended together in terms of how they were implemented into the research studies. And we can think about why this might make sense given that most of our studies came from outside of social psychology, where, you know, rather than trying to specify the precise mechanisms, you know, admittedly as a social psychologist, we would say, well, is it equal status? Is it sanction of authority? Is it com- cooperation or common goals? <laughs> Rather, most of these came from interventions or applied programs that were designed to try to improve intergroup relations so that are incorporating lots of different variables in the hopes of maximizing the effectiveness of program rather than specifying any particular mechanism in doing so. So given this, what we did instead was try to use a more general measure of whether the contact was explicitly structured to meet those optimal conditions that were outlined by Allport in the 1950s. That is, we wanted to know, did it make a difference if there were explicit efforts made to try to implement or introduce Allport's conditions into those context situations. And what we find is that compared to the overall effect when the contact is structured in line with all ports conditions, we tend to observe stronger effects or greater reductions in prejudice resulting from the contact. And here I also just want to add that the ability of these optimal conditions to predict those contact effects remains significant even after we control for a range of methodological variables that we include in our analysis. So this is important because meta analyses as, as an approach or as a procedure are oftentimes criticized for conducting comparisons across studies where there are different samples, different research procedures, different materials or surveys used. And so what we're finding here, at least in part, is that even after we take into account a lot of the variability associated (coughs) with those different types of research methods and procedures, we're still seeing the significance or the meaning of implementing Allport's conditions as a way of facilitating positive outcomes from intergroup contact. Um, Now, importantly... Also related to this issue of methodology is that we find substantially stronger effects of contact when those contact studies are more rigorous or involve more rigorous research methods. And I just want to give you a couple of examples of what we mean by research rigor in this case. Um, So one of the things that we coded for was the design of the study that was conducted. And what we tend to find is that we observe stronger effects or a more intense negative relationship between contact and prejudice when the design of the study was a controlled experiment, when you can actually test for the effects of contact on prejudice as compared to survey studies or studies that were conducted in observational settings or field settings. And at the same time, we also wanted to look at the reliability of the measures used to assess contact and prejudice. So here we looked at whether, just using contact as an example, we assessed whether contact was assessed just with a single item, with a multi-item scale that wasn't reliable where the items didn't hang together well. A multi-item scale with high reliability where it really seemed to represent a single concept or some sort of experimental manipulation where people were either exposed to contact or not. And what we see is that pretty consistently when the contact is assessed using more reliable indicators, again, we tend to observe stronger relationships between contact and prejudice. And we find this across a variety of different methodological variables that we looked at Basically, this idea that the better the measures or procedures used in the research studies, the more clearly we're observing these relationships emerge between contact and prejudice. So, so far we've addressed some methodological issues associated with this relationship between contact and prejudice, but there are also some other issues that we need to address, and one of these pertains to the generalization of contact's effects, because it could be that the significant relationship that we're observing is really limited to those studies that are assessing prejudice towards the individual outgroup members with whom the contact occurred. That is, prejudice among people within the contact situation, rather than extending beyond that contact situation to affect attitudes towards the other group as a whole. So we conducted some additional analyses to examine this issue, and for this analysis, we examined each test of the relationship between contact and prejudice. So rather than looking at the full study, we looked at each measure of contact and each measure of prejudice to see if we could look at those different types of outcomes depending on how they're measured. So basically, we coded these tests to see whether the outcome measure assessed prejudice towards the individual outgroup members within the contact (laughs) situation or prejudice towards the outgroup as a whole as a form of generalization. What we find is that overall, the effects for prejudice towards the outgroup as a whole do not significantly differ from the effects for prejudice towards the individual outgroup members within the contact situation, suggesting that the the effects of contact can, in fact, generalize. And just for those of you who might be interested, I also put prejudice towards other outgroups. Um, Tom Pettigrew has been doing a lot of work recently looking at how contact with members of one group might not just change your attitudes towards that group, but may actually have a kind of secondary effect in transferring you know the different ways in which you think about groups in general, such, a, such that you become more accepting or open once you had contact with one group to a whole variety of groups, even if you haven't had direct contact with them. And so we see some evidence for that as well in this analysis. Um, now, in addition to this issue of generalization, we also considered the issue of choice and whether participants were free to choose about whether to engage in the contact or not, because it could be that maybe contact would only have positive effects for people who willingly chose to engage in the contact and that it wouldn't necessarily work for people who did not have that opportunity to choose. But in actuality, what we find is that greater contact is associated with less prejudice regardless of the degree to which participants were free to choose about whether to engage in the contact or not, suggesting that Issues of self-selection among participants in these studies is not sufficient to fully explain away this overall significant relationship between contact and prejudice that we're observing in our full analysis. But we also wanted to push this a little bit further and see if there might be contextual variability in contact's effects such that we might observe significant effects of contact in some contexts but not in others. Um, And so we've examined this issue in a variety of ways and I'm just going to give you a couple of examples of what we've looked at. So one example is to look at the type of target group involved in the contact. And overall what we find is that greater contact is typically associated with less prejudice across many different types of groups, whether they involve racial and ethnic groups, which in that race and ethnicity category actually includes more like ethno-political groups, um, or other types of groups that have little to do with race or ethnicity we do find somewhat stronger effects for contact between straights and gays in the context of sexual orientation. And I can talk more later if you're interested about why that's the case. But even with that variability, again, if we think about the fact that our mean effect for the full analysis is negative 0.2, we're seeing a pretty consistent uh, level of relationship between contact and prejudice regardless of the particular groups involved in the contact. We've also found similar consistency across different types of contact settings uh, where people might come into contact in schools or at work or in neighborhoods or having fun together in after school programs. What we see is that there are especially strong effects of contact in those recreational contexts, like Boys and Girls Club types of places or in controlled laboratory settings. But we also find pretty comparable effects uh, of contact in organizational settings, educational settings, and residential settings. And we also see pretty similar patterns if we look at geographical regions or geographical areas, again, suggesting that greater contact is associated with lower levels of prejudice across many different parts of the world, for studies conducted in many different parts of the world. So overall, based on these types of findings, what we're observing is that greater contact is typically associated with less prejudice, regardless of whether participants are choosing to engage in the contact, regardless of the particular groups involved, and to some degree, regardless of the particular setting in which the contact is occurring. Um, and so coupled with findings pertaining to the generalization of effects and research rigor, these findings are giving us a bit more confidence in this overall effect that greater contact is typically associated with less prejudice. Um, But so far we've only been looking at the questions of whether contact reduces prejudice or when contact might reduce prejudice, and we still need to explore how or why contact might be effective in reducing prejudice. And traditionally, contact theory has proposed kind of a direct relationship such that greater contact is associated with less prejudice. Um, But over the years, a number of processes have been proposed to try to account for this relationship or really explain why this works. One of these has to do with knowledge about the outgroup. As you can see in this slide from our meta-analytic research, we do find some evidence that by having contact, you gain knowledge about the outgroup, you learn more about the other group, and this in turn contributes to reducing your prejudice towards them. Um, But what we're also finding is that even more important than knowledge are uh, emotional or affective processes, such as anxiety and empathy, such that by having contact with members of another group, you have opportunities to reduce your anxiety about that group, and you also enhance your ability to empathize and take those other group members' perspectives, and these in turn contribute to reductions in prejudice. And I just want to clarify, as we look at this slide, it would be, this is actually an amalgamation of three separate analyses testing mediation, one for anxiety, one for knowledge, and one for empathy. We would have loved to have a sample of studies that investigated all of these simultaneously, but unfortunately they don't, yet, yet, exist in the research literature. However, there are, there's a small select number of studies that look both at anxiety and empathy as possible mediators for these contact-prejudice relationships. And when we look at those simultaneously, what we find is that uh, both anxiety and empathy are independently predicting variants. That is, they're both independently contributing to explaining that relationship by which contact reduces prejudice. Um, and I just wanted to also mentioned something about these findings in terms of their practical value, because this is the slide that when I give talks at NGOs or nonprofits, they always kind of stop in their tracks and their eyes go very wide, because they're thinking about their program's materials and the types of interventions that they've tried using, many of which are based on knowledge, many of which are based on transmitting information about the other group to prepare people for interactions across group boundaries. And they realized that, oh, maybe on the one hand, we need to think about how to implement aspects of anxiety reduction strategies or empathy building exercises into our programs or at the very least at the level of outcome when we're doing evaluations of our program to assess these types of variables to look for changes on those fronts and maximize the chances of of finding significant effects of those interventions. Um, So the last thing that I'll mention about this and this is something that I'm currently thinking and writing a bit about is also the potential sequential nature of anxiety and empathy is playing important roles. That we might need to think about first reducing feelings of anxiety and threat to actually open people up to the possibility of being willing to listen, being willing to engage, being willing to empathize or take perspectives of members of other groups. And I'd be happy to talk more about that later as well. Um, But for the rest of my talk, what I'd like to do is to shift gears somewhat to talk a little bit more about responses to contact among members of different status groups. Overall, uh, in the history of contact theory, it's it's been proposed as a fairly general conceptualization of what happens when members of different groups interact, focusing on this general question of what happens when there is contact between groups, and social psychologists have really only begun to consider um, how members of different groups may show different responses to contact in relation to their position in the social structure. And so here, in talking about differences on the basis of group status, I'm going to be using the terms minority and majority to refer to status distinctions between the groups, where minority is being used to refer to the devalued, oppressed, or negatively stereotyped group in that contact situation, and majority to refer to the dominant or high status Status group in that contact situation. And we wanted to conduct this comparison because there's a growing body of work to suggest that members of these minority and majority status groups may importantly differ in how they conceive of their intergroup relationships and actually define relations between their groups we can think about what these tendencies might mean for attempting to achieve positive outcomes from intergroup contact among members of minority and majority status groups. Because it could be that even when we try to use contact to try to improve relations between the groups, that long-standing histories of status inequalities, oppression, or exposure to prejudice and discrimination might seriously inhibit the potential for achieving positive outcomes among members of minority status groups as compared to the effects that we're accustomed to seeing among members of majority status groups. So we decided to begin examining these issues using our meta-analytic data. And when we did this, the first thing that we noticed uh, was the relative scarcity of research on intergroup contact from the perspective of members of minority status groups. So as I mentioned previously, our analysis incorporates data from 515 studies that include 713 independent samples. But only 142 of those samples assessed any aspect of experience from the perspective of minority groups, and over 500 of those samples examined the perspectives of members of majority status groups. Then when we actually compare the magnitudes of the effects for minority and majority status groups, what we find is that pretty consistently The relationship between contact and prejudice tends to be weaker for our minority samples compared to the majority samples, and this finding is consistent whether we look at all of the samples in our analysis or separate out those samples that pertain to racial, ethnic, or ethno-political contact. And that constitutes, those racial and ethnic cases constitute approximately 50% of the cases in our full analysis. And I should also mention that again, as we did for the optimal condition analysis, we find that this minority-majority difference persists even after we control for a range of methodological variables that we had included in our analysis. So we were intrigued by these findings, but we wanted to see whether we could replicate them in a single study, especially given that, that analyses are often criticized for conducting comparisons across different types of studies. So we conducted a secondary analysis of data gathered by a organization in New York called the National Conference for Community and Justice. This data set incorporates responses from 709 black Americans and 995 white Americans from a nationally representative sample of adults in the United States. Um, In the survey, they completed a general contact measure where they indicated whether they currently have contact with a member of the other group. And they also uh, responded how close they feel to outgroup members in general, which we're here using as a proxy indicator of prejudice. In this case, with higher scores corresponding to greater intergroup closeness. And then participants also uh, provided responses to a number of demographic indicators, including age, gender, level of education, family income, and political ideology. So as the first step in our analysis, we wanted to examine the overall relationship between contact and closeness to see whether we would observe a similar pattern of findings to what we observed in our meta-analysis. And here we conducted both correlations between the two measures as well as partial correlations where we controlled for those demographic indicators. Comparable to the meta-analysis, overall we found a significant relationship between contact and closeness such that greater contact is associated with greater intergroup closeness. Um, and this is the case both with and without controlling for those demographic indicators. But then we also found that the relationship between contact and closeness was substantially weaker among black respondents in the sample compared to the effects we observed for white respondents. Again, paralleling the pattern we observed in the meta-analysis. So then, we wanted to examine these patterns of effects and whether they might be associated with distinct views of the intergroup relationship among these black and white respondents. So here, we focused on our we focused our analysis on group members' perceptions of discrimination <coughs> against their own racial group, um, since this is an important dimension of the intergroup relationship on which members of minority and majority status groups tend to differ. As we might expect. Black respondents perceived significantly more discrimination against their racial group compared to white respondents in this sample, but importantly, we also found that perceived discrimination moderates the relationship between contact and closeness in different ways for these black and white respondents, such that for those who reported low levels of discrimination against their racial group, we simply see a main effect of contact, that contact is associated with greater closeness, and this is consistent for both our black and white respondents. However, among respondents who reported a great deal of discrimination, we now see divergent effects for black and white respondents such that we see particularly pronounced effects of contact for whites, but we no longer observe a significant effect of contact among our black respondents. And there's actually two other little details that I want to mention with respect to these findings. On the one hand, these patterns of effects are entirely consistent whether or not we control for the demographic indicators. And also, I wanted to mention that more than half of the black respondents in this sample reported the absolute highest score on the discrimination scale is absolutely possible, suggesting the significance of discrimination as a negative force in the intergroup relationship from their perspective. So together what these results seem to be suggesting is that while yes, positive outcomes can often be achieved through intergroup contact, the presence of discrimination as a negative force in the intergroup relationship is likely to constrain the potentially positive effects of contact, particularly among members of minority status groups and in ways that we might not uh, detect among members of majority status groups. So now if we relate all of these findings back to the broader framework of intergroup contact theory, we might start to question whether establishing all Allport's conditions within the contact situation can actually be sufficient to alleviate these broader negative forces of prejudice and discrimination to allow positive outcomes from contact for members of both minority and majority status groups. And so we've returned to our data from the meta-analysis for a preliminary test of these ideas. And specifically, what we wanted to test was whether these optimal conditions would significantly contribute to predicting positive outcomes, or predicting reductions in prejudice for both our minority and majority samples. So to do this, what we did is we conducted regression analyses for our minority and majority samples, where we entered all ports, conditions and all of those <coughs> methodological moderators as predictors. And again, we conducted these analyses comparing minority and majority patterns of effects, both for all of the samples in our analysis, and also separately for those racial and ethnic samples to see if they would be similar or different. And what we basically find by looking at the optimal conditions line here is that these optimal conditions are predicting significantly stronger contact prejudice effects for the majority samples, but Allport's conditions are not significantly predicting significant or contact prejudice effects for the minority samples above and beyond what can be accounted for by methodology. Now, it could be that the statistical significance or the lack of it in the minority context reflects the relatively smaller number of cases in this minority context, Um, but it could also be that these uh, effects are suggesting that members of minority and majority status groups are subjectively responding to contact in different ways, even when the contact situation is objectively structured to maximize positive intergroup outcomes. And this has led us to a number of new research programs uh, concerning different aspects of people's subjective responses to contact and different ways in which or potential asymmetries in how different status groups might respond to contact. And depending on how much time I have, I'll share a couple of examples. So five, ten minutes? I'll shoot for five minutes. Okay, then I'm going to breeze through the first of the three studies, um, and I'll just kind of brief you on what you're looking at. One of the things that we've... uh, looked at is the extent to which people might be interested in engaging in contact, depending on the extent to which they believe diversity is valued. Um, And here we included three different measures to assess their perceptions of the valuing of diversity. First of all, the extent to which they value diversity themselves, the extent to which they believe outgroup members, the ones they expect to interact with, value diversity, and also at the broader societal level. Do you think diversity is generally valued in the broader society? What we were interested in doing... oh have another slide, sorry. Um, So what we first find is that whereas ethnic majority group members believe that they and others and society at large are all valuing diversity to a pretty similar extent, we see that ethnic minority participants (coughs) believe that they personally value diversity substantially more than do whites and compared to society in general. Okay, now we're here. All right, so then what we wanted to do was use these diversity measures as a way of predicting people's interest in intergroup contact separately for our ethnic minority and majority samples. So at the first step of analysis, in a multiple regression analysis, we first started to predict... uh, We entered outgroup interest as a predictor for their own interest. So to what extent are you interested in contact taking into account the extent to which you believe outgroup members are interested in interacting with your group? And we see that that does predict a fair amount of the variance in people's own interests. There is some kind of reciprocal norm happening here that it's like, well, if I think they're interested in interacting with me, I'd be happy to interact with them. But then we wanted to look at these diversity measures and see which of those would be predicting interest in contact among our ethnic minority and majority participants. And here we start to see some divergences, such that for ethnic majority group members, or for whites in this case, the extent to which they personally value diversity, think diversity is a good thing, predicts their interest in contact with racial and ethnic minorities. But for ethnic minority respondents, it doesn't matter how much they personally value diversity. What they want to know is whether whites value diversity. It kind of relates to these issues of trust, right? Um, and so we're kind of following this up with additional studies looking at not just valuing of diversity, but percep- like perceptions of others' intentions, perceptions of the extent to which you can trust them, both in the context of domestic racial and ethnic relations and also... Um, in in South Africa and Northern Ireland, where we've collected some community samples um, and are looking at perceptions of reconciliation of the peace process. Like, do you think they're doing that just because of strategic purposes, or do you think they really want to achieve peace? Um, So that is one example. And I'll just stop there with that to be able to include the other two. We've also been looking at normative influences such that Rather than focusing, oh, sorry, I have to say one more thing. Sadly, if you look at the the society level one, the extent to which you think society in general values diversity doesn't predict your interest in contact at all above and beyond your own attitudes and your perceptions about what the others in that society think. So again, it's getting at the subjective nature of the intergroup experience, not necessarily those optimal conditions writ large, but the extent to which you believe those are truly internalized by the other groups that you're going to be interacting with. So now, so we started also looking at normative influences involved in intergroup contact effects. So rather than focusing so heavily on trying to establish conditions of the contact situation, we're trying to think about how people perceive the conditions of their contact as embedded within the larger social context or societies in which they attempt to interact. And so we've been doing so in collaboration with a colleague at Queen's University Belfast where we've been gathering community samples of Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland And so here what we did was we first included a measure of positive prior contact, asking people to describe when you've had experiences with the other community, um, to what extent has it been friendly, cooperative, uh, equal status, and positive, reflecting those types of optimal conditions that are usually represented in the contact literature. And then we also have included measures of their perceived norms surrounding the contact, such as whether they think their friends, their family, their community, would approve or disapprove of their having contact with the other group. And we wanted to see the extent to which these variables could predict three different types of outcomes. In part, their interest in contact or engagement across group boundaries or community boundaries. Their willingness for integration. What are their actual goals for reconciliation? Do they hope for integration? Are they showing a preference for kind of peaceful coexistence? And what's their optimism in the long term for the future relations between the groups? Do they actually believe that someday they'll be able to live in a shared society and actually be able to get along? So what we find is that above and beyond the effects of having positive personal contact experiences, and I should mention, all of these effects are controlling for positive prior contact. In all of these cases, prior positive contact is predicting more positive effects on these outcomes. But above and beyond the effects of prior positive contact, we find that these normative sources of information, what you think your family or peers or friends or community members think, is leading you to become more or less depending on their valence, more or less interested in contact, more or less willing to integrate, more or less optimistic about the future of relations between those groups. Um, And we believe that these types of findings are important because they suggest that even if we do everything that we can within the contact situation to try to maximize these positive outcomes from contact, that there are still many formidable forces outside of that immediate contact situation that we still need to take into account if we truly wish to achieve positive relations between groups and which are only now starting to be studied by contact researchers. And I think this issue in particular is uh, especially important when we talk about status distinctions between groups and the implications of contact for members of the different groups that we wish to engage in contact. So very recently, our field has started to um, identify some divergent findings regarding the effects of contact among members of racial minority and majority groups. Most of these have been done in the race context. So on the one hand, along the lines of the work that I've already discussed, we find that positive contact effects tend to be weaker among members of minority minority groups generally, and particularly when they perceive discrimination against their groups. But at the same time, there's also evidence to suggest that positive contact might lead members of minority groups to actually perceive less discrimination, which, if you think about discrimination of what it predicts, that that could actually undermine their perceptions of relative deprivation and their commitment to engage in collective action to support social change or to challenge the status quo. So just to give you an example of some of these findings, and this is from a different South African sample um, that I've been working on with John Dixon, Colin Trudeau, and Kevin Durheim, we have a national probability, sem- or sorry, random digit dialing sample of black and white South Africans. Um, and what we find is that the more positive contact, friendly, equal status, cooperative contact that individual black South Africans have with whites, the less discrimination they perceive against themselves as individual black South Africans, and the less discrimination they perceive against black South Africans in general as a group. Um, But on the other hand, what we're finding with our white South African sample is that positive contact with black South Africans is associated with greater support for policies that would reduce racial discrimination. And here you can see some results from that white South African sample that we have showing that greater contact is associated with less opposition to race-based policies that would support black advancement, including both compensatory policies, including things like training and education programs, as well as preferential policies, where blacks would potentially be selected in preference over whites. And this is the case even after we control for some common predictors of opposition to race-based policies, such as perceptions of threat, levels of prejudice, and a sense of injustice, that this is unfair, that they're being given these things and we're not being given access to them. So just to briefly sum up from these uh, different branches of research overall, and consistent with the broader history of intergroup contact theory and research, what we find is that greater levels of intergroup contact are typically associated with lower levels of intergroup prejudice, and we observe such effects across a very broad range of contexts and settings. Um, And our findings from the meta-analysis also suggest that contact between groups under optimal conditions can oftentimes facilitate the positive development of these outcomes. But our findings also suggest that members of minority and majority status groups often show different responses to contact and that positive effects of contact tend to be less pronounced among members of minority status groups as compared to the effects that we observe from majority status groups. even when we attempt to establish those optimal conditions within the contact situation. In particular, we, one thing we've noted is that the existence of prejudice and discrimination as kind of a negative force of the intergroup relationship may taint or inhibit the potential for positive outcomes to emerge from contact among members of minority groups in ways beyond those that may be regularly detected among members of majority status groups, type, And so as a consequence, we believe that Contact theory's original focus on establishing conditions within the contact situation may not necessarily be sufficient to promote positive intergroup outcomes among members of both minority and majority groups, and that as a field, and hopefully other fields, uh, we really need to move beyond a focus on objective conditions of the contact situation, as we've tended to do in the past, to consider how subjective responses to intergroup contacts, such as group members' expectations for how they'll be perceived or received by outgroup members, and the motivations and goals that they both bring to cross-group interactions and that they have for the outcomes of cross-group interactions. By focusing on, on these more subjective issues can give us greater insights regarding those strategies that might be effective in improving relations among members of both minority and majority status groups. So I think I'll stop there and take your questions. Thank you. All
1: right.
0: Sounds good. Yes. I
1: wonder if you could say more about how you differentiate among
0: prejudice, um,
1: discrimination, mm-hmm.
0: stereotyping, yep. stigma, yes oppression. Very good question. So um you know, I'll tell you, first of all, I'll tell you kind of the social psychology like the, the standard social psychologist answer, and then I'll share my own opinion. So the standard social psychological answer is that stereotypes per- uh, generally pertains to what we think about other groups, the more cognitive aspect. Prejudice pertains more to our attitudes, or more evaluative aspect, uh, and discrimination pertains more to our behavior, how we treat members of other groups. I th- I think what is also required um, in thinking about these issues is uh, discussions of power. Um, You know, and a lot of times when I engage in, you know, like facilitating intergroup dialogues, I'll often hear, for example, this is one example, ethnic minority students at the university saying, well, you know, I'm a member of an oppressed minority, so I can't be racist, I can't discriminate. And that's not a view that I personally share. I think we all have the potential to discriminate, but that it depends on the context. And given the current status hierarchies and social relations, it's it's less likely <laughs> that members of oppressed groups might discriminate against others. Um, but that I think we all have that potential, and I think that's something that you know, on either side of the interaction, we can be so entrenched in our worldview about the status of our group or how we're treated that we might not recognize the impacts of our behavior on other groups. Um, yep. Oh, no, 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 that's actually a whole other line of research that I couldn't include. Um, So just to kind of briefly sum that up, in the meta-analysis, we also coded the research studies for the types of prejudice as outcomes. And there were basically four different types of measures that we used as indicators. Two of them are more affectively based, kind of uh, emotions, how you feel or anticipate feeling in interactions with other groups. Some are favorability, positive evaluations, liking, and things like that. Others are beliefs, kind of your judgments about the groups, more kind of like traditional racial attitude measures that we might use in like political psychology. And the other being stereotypes, uh, really the, your beliefs about the particular attributes or characteristics that you associate with those groups. And those really grew out of our reading of the, lit- the research literature and social psychological research on attitudes as well that distinguishes between more cognitive components of attitudes and more affective components of attitudes. So we, you know, coded all of those and then conducted the analysis. And I apologize, I don't have the slides right here. But when we look at the meta-analytic data, what we find is that it's really those more affectively-based measures that are showing stronger relationships between contact and prejudice. So whether it's emotions, or whether it's those favorability and liking ratings, those are the ones, if we dummy code them and control for level of generalization and reliability of the measures and those methodological types of factors, we see it's the emotions and favorability ratings that are really lighting up, predicting those significant effects. Again, because we were like, well that's interesting, but is it real? (laughs) Because it's mixing lots of different types of studies. So uh, we conducted an additional survey study uh, with an undergraduate population, not a national sample, where we subjected these poor, poor undergraduates to a whole battery of questions about contact, white participants, about contact with African Americans, and also a whole smattering. I think we had like eight different prejudice measures based on those categorizations, trying to represent those different concepts in a, a variety of ways. So we started off doing... Uh, exploratory and confirmatory factor analysis just among the prejudice measures to see how they would cluster together, and we found that two latent factors consistently emerged. One more affective prejudice, including positive and negative emotions, favorability and liking. The other, uh, including more cognitive dimensions of prejudice, including stereotypes, beliefs, and pro- and anti-black racial attitudes, the Haas measure, for those of you who might be familiar with it. And then we looked at our contact measures predicting each of those latent factors, and what we found... In, I should say, including measures of both number of outgroup acquaintances, more superficial forms of contact, and also number of outgroup friends as a closer, more intimate form of contact. And we also had measures of how close you feel to the outgroup members you know as a more subjective, close form of contact. When we look at acquaintances predicting each of those latent factors, there were no significant effects. Um, once cross-group friends was already included in the model. So above and beyond what can be predicted by friendships, having out-group acquaintances was not predicting either latent factor of prejudice. However, when you look at the number of cross-group friends predicting those two latent factors, what we find is that there's only a significant relationship between contact and affective prejudice in the order of a correlation of about 0.3 where there was no significant relationship between contact and cognitive prejudice. It was a correlation of about like 0.05. Um, so it seems to be suggesting to us that one, one important thing and this relates to the mediation findings as well is that affective processes how you feel towards members of other groups are really a large part of what's changing as a result of your contact experiences not necessarily so much what you think about them so I hope that addresses your question yeah <coughs> um, I'm, I'm a
2: historian an American historian and just, uh, just an observation about got your conclusion and this is probably disciplinary sure. difference, but I would say if there's one pattern in U.S. history about intergroup contact, it would be the reverse of your conclusion, mm. that the greater the intergroup contact, the greater is the likelihood, um, take the white-black example, explosive racial right. uh, conflict. Yes. But that, that's because of... Driving that would be demographic change. Right. And my sense is that you're dealing with populations that are fairly static in terms of where they live, and now they're having greater context. Mm. But anywhere you look mm-hmm. uh, in the, the pattern of black migration to you know northern, yep. western, and western cities, yep. in the context of World War One and World War II, in almost every historical case in which race relations have been studied, yep. what has been confirmed is the opposite. Right. The greater Contact the greater the conflict at the workplace, in terms of neighborhoods, in terms of fights over recreational facilities. Yep. And I was just wondering how, when you're doing a, a meta analysis, how do you
0: factor in that kind of historical data? Yeah. Um, I think, in one respect, you can't. And I think, you know, it's a point well taken, and I suspect if there are any political scientists here who. <clears throat> Favor social capital explanations for relations between groups, and that you know diversity might undo some degree of trust or make it harder for people to feel comfortable interacting across group boundaries. I think I think there's those things are happening too, and I think a, a, we can't exactly address it in this analysis. But one thing that I think we really need to think about, um, and that I was hoping to emphasize, and I'll come back to it, is the level of analysis that we're looking at. Um, so when I've given talks in other Uh, context and had similar types of questions come up, which I think are totally valid. Um, One of the questions that I ask is, what is your operational definition of contact? And oftentimes, what is thought of as contact is kind of numerical representations of different groups within a particular community setting or in a neighborhood. And I'm like, so do we actually have indicators of whether living in a diverse environment, whether that actually translate into face-to-face interactions. And that's something, um, I, I, I apologize that I didn't go into as much depth given time, but one of our inclusion rules for this meta-analysis was not only that the data had to be collected at the level of the individual, but also that it had to involve some degree of face-to-face interaction. Um, and, it, and so what I think future work needs to do and what I would be really excited about thinking about it from an interdisciplinary perspective is getting a bunch of sociologists and political scientists and social psychologists together and anyone else who would be interested to, um, to look at the number of steps that might be involved in relation to those migration patterns. So you would have first, are there opportunities for contact? Are there people residing in in similar communities, or are there recent influxes of of different communities, such as black migration up north? Um, So start there, and then say, okay, of those who have opportunities for contact, are they actually having face-to-face interaction? And I think that would help us start to get a sense of, okay, does does that opportunity for contact translate into actual face-to-face interaction? And then to actually question, okay, for those having face-to-face interaction, is it actually superficial like uh, a cashier at the grocery store, or actually, are there opportunities for you to engage more deeply in getting to know each other across group boundaries? And if we had more studies that actually operationalize contact at those multiple levels, I think we would get so many greater insights um, into those relationships. Yeah. If it would seem that your
3: assertion of the, the different clients from yours would actually necessarily be in conflict with one another, but mm-hmm. taken in effect, you're uh, talking about what are the optimal conditions for mm-hmm. contact. Certainly, there were not common goals. Often goal goals competing. In terms of one group being threatened by others moving in, people taking jobs, threatened by the unknown. There certainly wasn't an equal power status in terms of you know stats mm-hmm. in, in the community, and there was not certainly institutional support. When you think about redlining, keeping certain people out of the neighborhood to protect the dominant party, so. I think they're actually probably more supportive of one another
0: than I, I mean, I actually, I don't see these in conflict. And I think oftentimes they're portrayed as being conflictual interpretations. And I really think it's a measurement issue and a levels of analysis issue. And I have
1: a too, I
0: could I offer the, because sure. you said part of what I was thinking about. The other thing is the mediation analysis where we show anxiety okay. and empathy. I really think anxiety, you know, we're describing that pretty largely in terms of uh, threat. You know, if you think about it from a threat model, you know, contact is probably not going to be likely to reduce prejudice if threat is present. You know, I think we're, we're self-interested beings and self-interested groups, and I think we need to make sure that we're going to be okay <laughs> to be able to open ourselves up to actually being able to empathize or being willing to empathize or engage across group boundaries. So I think that issue of threat is crucial, and I and Tom Pettigrew and some of the German folks that we've been working with have actually been looking simultaneously at models that incorporate both threat and positive contact experiences to show, like, each of them is predicting kind of a different piece of the puzzle. But I wanted to be able to get back to your question before I take questions. From yeah, what you had
3: mentioned, or at least it was mentioned in your introduction, that mm-hmm. you, uh, colleagues, uh, if I heard this right, also have evaluated different programs mm-hmm. which tend to reduce prejudice based upon uh, yeah. putting people into contact with
2: mm-hmm.
3: them. As someone on a college campus who has a, you know, an I-4 and participates in those types of models, would you say that you found any of the best practices that have, have
0: worked? I can tell you, not in terms of those kind of individual organizations. Most of the work that I've personally done, I really am kind of a data geek, so um, I really am focused on measurement. Um, And one of my concerns is I've just heard... I've heard many nonprofits and NGOs say, well, you know, we hired this independent consultant to, like, help design a questionnaire and evaluate our our intervention, and they're like, well, we didn't really find anything, and so I'm like, well, can I look at the surveys and, you know, try to get a sense of what types of questions were asked, what types of questions were not asked, and try to, like, just sit down with them and talk with them a little bit about um, the goals of their program, what inspired their program, and kind of doing some diagnostics about the types of questions that they'd really be interested in. I'm like, well, from what you described, it really sounds like this is what you want. They're like, exactly, but we don't have that in the data. And so really helping them do a better job of structuring their instruments so that they can get the data that they care about. So those vary, as you might imagine, substantially from organization to organization. What I can tell you is I've been part, uh, for the last couple of years now, part of this uh, larger entity called the Joint Learning Initiative on Children and Ethnic Diversity, that's kind of an international interdisciplinary network of researchers, practitioners, and policymakers trying to understand best practices for reducing prejudice and ethnic tensions through early education programs, really, like children age eight and younger. Um, so, we've been doing some reviews of the research literature. Um, looking at the different approaches, some being contact-based, some being diversity or education-based, some being a vicarious contact like Sesame Workshop. Oh, I'm you know <laughs> seeing these kids from different groups interact with each other and really trying to get a sense of what we know of the effectiveness. And that's another challenge um, is that when there are funding cuts for interventions, the first thing to go is evaluation, Um, so there aren't as many evaluations. There's like many program booklets of materials, but we don't always have good evaluation data. Um, So we've been working on trying to kind of learn what do we know about best practices from all of that work in early education um, or early childhood, and we're going to be pilot testing actually in Indonesia this spring, visiting some preschools where we're having people develop storybooks, incorporating themes from diversity education, intergroup contact, vicarious contact, all of the, and empathy building, all of those types of things, to actually test, based on all the g- data we've gathered, you know, if we actually implement this into practice as it works. So we're kind of in the middle of doing some of that. I think you had your hand next. Oh, yes. To what extent does your research and the larger literature mm-hmm.
4: deal with intragroup conflict, and how is that manifested in the anxieties? The group feels about the
2: out-group,
4: and on a minor level, uh, the slide on geographic
0: Mm
4: -hmm. why did you quote Latin America and Africa?
0: And Africa, Africa, yeah. Um, That is sadly because there were so few cases. There were four or five cases from all of Africa and there were two or three cases from all of Latin America. And the mean effects were almost identical. So it was purely on those bases that they were combined. By comparison, the literature is overwhelmingly conducted in the United States, then Europe. Um, And I've actually tried to think about other ways of of slicing the data more specifically, but for this type of analysis, um, you need to have critical mass. You need to have a certain number of cases to feel like you have confidence in in the the numbers of results. And I figured that it would be better to combine them to have enough cases, Africa and Latin America in that case, than to not include them at all. So that was a judgment call on my part in terms of how to represent these findings. Um, Regarding your broader question, though, and I should also mention there are some researchers like Dixon, Durham, and Trudeau um, Yep, all three. They're all South African. <laughs> and they're the folks that I've been collaborating with on the research. So there's actually right now, at a number of different universities, in South Africa at the very least, um, University of Cape Town, a little bit at Western Cape, Stellenbosch, and witz in Johannesburg, very active in looking at these types of issues, particularly the folks at UCT, um, University of Cape Town, uh, doing these national surveys. Um, regarding your other question about like, within-group dynamics, there's some very basic research in social psychology that addresses this issue, but I don't know the extent to which it's been applied to like international or ethno-political conflict. So what it basically talks about is when, we're, when, when group membership is salient, when we think of ourselves as group members, we're motivated to act as good group members, to be good representatives of our groups, and we can actually oftentimes be stigmatized or considered deviant if we don't conform to the norms and standards of our group. And so if you think about this in the context of ethno-political conflict, we could imagine how if somebody, if, if groups are entrenched in conflict and somebody tries to reach across and actually shake the other side's hand, they might be seriously stigmatized or, or considered separate from the rest of their group. So th- there are these competing psychological motivations that might be coming into play. And I actually think this is one of the issues that makes intractable conflicts so hard to resolve because we do care about what members of our group think, and especially if we don't have close relationships across group boundaries to try to counteract those close relationships we have with our group, the motivation to reach across group boundaries will barely ever be equal to the motivation that we have to stand with our group. I don't know if that responds to your question. that
4: suggest that there is perhaps a need for more focused discussion Mm -hmm. or research on why individuals, have prejudice. Yes. Because if you control for all the external indicators, the variables you listed, mm.
1: if
4: you control for all of them and assume a perfect Igbo nation. I'm an Igbo from uh, Eastern Nigeria. Mm-hmm. No Yoruba, no Hausa, no Efik, no nothing. Do we still have prejudice within the group? Do we still have conflict within the group? Yeah. I, I think for me that's, that is more exciting Mm -hmm. in order to understand Mm -hmm. why when there is an external Mm -hmm. threat, we react the way we react and forget the internal conflict.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so rather than thinking about taking away all of the other groups and just ending up with the in-group, I hope it's okay if I almost answer your question from the reverse or respond to your comment from the reverse. So there has been a strategy proposed In the intergroup, broader intergroup contact literature called recategorization, or having a common in-group to which these other smaller groups can all become part. So, you know, it's like for all of these different ethnic groups or racial groups that you describe, including them in the broader national identity as one example. And there has been, you know, a fair amount of research to show that actually that can improve intergroup attitudes. And the rationale behind that approach is basically saying that since we have biases towards members of our own group, and we're generally biased against members of other groups, if we shift the level of categorization so that we're now all members of one group, then that should shift the attributions we make. That should shift our evaluations of other members of that group. So when that first came out, that was considered very persuasive. A lot of research has been done on it. And I think there is still a fair amount of support for that. But I think people have also recognized some caveats associated with it. And one of them is precisely what you mentioned. Um, uh, Amelie Mumendai and her colleagues in Germany in particular have shown That when you recategorize to the superordinate level, that then the level of prejudice just switches. That it may not be prejudice as much toward the other groups that are now subsumed within that larger group, but rather at another group at that level. So you can think about, rather than racial and ethnic groups in the United States, as one example, if we all get to the point where we actually identify all as Americans to the same extent, which has its own questions associated with it. But if that were to happen, then it would be more likely that we as Americans would express prejudice towards other nations. So it's a level of prejudice as- kind of uh, associated or in in tandem with the level of categorization that's most salient or most prominent. Yeah?
5: Um, I'm always interested as an ethnographer in how to think about the experimental work mm-hmm. that's done in this It seems to me that they raise um, what might be a problematic premise, really, at the basis of this research, which is that intergroup contact is unusual. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, and it seems... I mean, this is a helpful premise, obviously, mm-hmm. if, if you're designing an experiment, if you assume that the group is a natural object, mm-hmm. then you can put it in contact with another group and see what happens. Yep. But it seems if you're looking at the historical global suite, that yep. the face-to-face intimacy between ethnicities and religions and mm-hmm. genders and classes and sexualities is the norm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of how society works. And so I'm wondering, would it be somehow possible to switch figure and ground and still retain the experimental method? That is, could you assume that contact and difference are sort of how social life is organized, Mm -hmm. and then could you create experiments that would figure out what are the effects of separation or dissociation, as happens, for example, in ethnic cleansing?
0: yeah i um I mean I don't know that we could reconstruct in the lab an analog to ethnic cleansing, nor would I propose that to the institutional review board <laughs> necessarily <laughs> um, but um I think you know I guess i've always approached i've always approached methodology depending on the research question that I care about, so i haven't traditionally been an experimental researcher. I do some stuff that is um very not necessarily decontextualized, but very laboratory-bound. One of the things that we've done, we've actually created cross-race friendships in the lab. So we randomly assign, like, Latina and white undergraduates to either a same-race or a cross-race friend, or same-ethnic and cross-ethnic friend. They come into the lab three times, do friendship-building activities, and um, we assess their cortisol levels to kind of get a sense of their stress responses. And then afterward, they complete diary studies where they keep track of their cross-race initiation, or, or their interactions that they've initiated and then report the race or ethnicity of the person they interacted with. And so we can actually see the development of these relationships over time. I don't know, though, that every question would appropriately be addressed in an experimental context. And it's interesting. I've actually been talking with some of the social psychology faculty here, because I'm not nearly as experimental as most of them are. And I was, like, you know, really delighted by the fact that they were so interested. I mean, it was very clear uh, in saying that Thinking other than experimentally is something that they really value for their students to kind of get a sense of different ways of, of framing research questions. What I do think is needed, I think we need more longitudinal studies, and I mean real longitudinal studies, not three week differences, but three year long studies, so that we can really see the genesis and the challenges that are met in sustaining cross-group relationships over time because I think there are different mechanisms and different processes that come into play. When you're first meeting members of different groups, and I think relating specifically to your question, I think that's where experimental studies are particularly good, because you can in- include all these modes of assessment when people are initially engaging in contact. That's a first step. But, and especially with a stranger, you know, contact with a stranger, that's what the experimental approach is really good for. But over time, as you start to develop a relationship, you're no longer, I'll speak kind of as a white American or a dominant group member where most of our literature suggests that whites are concerned about appearing racist when they first meet a member of another group. So you can get at that at the very beginning stages of that relationship, but what about later in the relationship when you actually might risk talking about racially sensitive topics, talking about your different or similar views about affirmative action? How do you navigate that? over time. And I think as a field, and I think this is true for ethno-political conflict as well, I think as a field, in social psychology, we've, you know, we've done a good job of trying to come up with tools that can promote prejudice reduction, but we haven't done a very good job of thinking about the stages of the intergroup relationship when those different tools might be more or less appropriate. And I really think that, you know, coupled with some of these more multi-level approaches would really just give us such deeper insights as to What are the appropriate strategies at different stages of intergroup relationship? And in fact, I mean, you know, one of the things that I often say, even though people have pegged me as the contact person, (laughs) you know, I say, you know, after decades of violent conflict, I think peaceful coexistence is a really good thing to try to achieve for a time. You know, I don't think you want to try to have dialogue programs right after violence. I think... You know, we need to think about which strategies are appropriate at those different stages of the intergroup relationship. So I don't know if I fully answered your question, but at least partially. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, well,
3: I wasn't sure what we uh, should take away from your talk when it comes to the
0: question of conflict. hmm Yep. A lot of the questions you've been
3: getting have been about comf- about conflict, about yep. different contact with conflict. So I guess first, in, in general terms, what is the relationship between prejudice? conflict, yep. and then maybe a more specific or skeptical version of that. that is thinking about your independent variables that matter. Mm-hmm. So if you have people interacting and they view each other as equals and interact as friends, and they have common goals, and they're engaging in a recreational activity together, and they're in a context of institutional support and positive norms, this is sort of the situation where I'd be least concerned about conflict. Yep. So it makes me wonder about the relationship
0: Yep. Admittedly, most of my research has not been on conflict per se, but kind of post-conflict reconciliation. Um, and that's actually been a more recent emphasis. Most of my work before the last several years, I moved to UMass about four years ago, um, and was mostly focused on racial and ethnic relations in domestic contexts. And it's only as a result of becoming director of this program that I've really started to think about similar how similar processes or potentially different processes might play out in more international, ethno-political contexts. Um, and so the slice that I'm looking at is really at that level of like post-conflict reconciliation or the potential for reconciliation even if there has been a history of conflict, but not necessarily looking at the experience of conflict per se. What I can tell you is I'm actually starting some research with one of my graduate students, um, looking at not only positive contact experiences, but negative contact experiences. Because I think that has just been totally overlooked in the research literature and my interest in perceived discrimination and those negative forces in the intergroup relationships, anxiety, threat. It's basically led us to say, well, you know, we know that groups have contact and not all contact is positive. And I know that (coughs) contact theory started off as a strategy to try to improve intergroup relations, but we have to admit that it's not always going to be successful. So what we're starting to do is to include uh, or conduct some studies, starting off with surveys, where we include measures of both positive contact experiences and also negative ones. And particularly, she's from Lebanon. We're also still collaborating uh, with folks in Northern Ireland and South Africa to include things like, you know, have you been displaced because of conflict? Have you had a bomb dropped on your home because of conflict? Some serious events that might really under, like, what, what what we don't know is would those simply just undermine the positive potential of contact? Is it like a hydraulic model that it depends on kind of relatively how positive or negative your contact experiences have been? Does it matter if you've personally had those negative experiences or you just know of other members of your group who have had them? And is that what be, will be the competing force that could potentially undermine these positive effects? So, and and what I'm particularly interested in is that issue of generalization. So, we can say if you have positive contact, you'll be more likely to have positive attitudes towards the group as a whole. What about with negative contact? It may not only be more likely to generalize, but it may as- actually generalize more often or more deeply because of self protective motives. So, those are some of the things that we're going to start looking at now, but I, in all honesty, have not really looked at conflict writ large.
3: Mm
0: Yes, and I think, I mean, there has been some work um, by some of my colleagues in the UK that have actually looked at people who've lived through the troubles and who have both suffered greatly as a result of the troubles and also developed cross-community friendships and find that those who have developed cross-community friendships are actually more willing to trust, more willing to forgive. um, And And what I think it does, is it allows for alternate attributions or interpretations of the other group's behavior. So rather than automatically assuming the worst of intentions, having at least some of those cross-group affiliations in a positive sense might lead us to question our own negative biases in that regard. So in that sense, I think it holds the potential for reducing further conflict or minimizing further conflict. Yeah.
5: Mm-hmm. And, um, like, and, um,
0: images
5: of women on:
0: of Yeah, and I think also the nature of the contact or what we, we might try to expect from any of these strategies will really depend again on the stage of the intergroup relationship. You know, so it might be that if we're used to having lots of casual interactions across group boundaries, it's like, so how do we go from that to actually talking about status inequalities? I and mean, that's that's a different question than just what happens when you first encounter a member of another group and the different anxieties that might come up when you do so. Yeah. I'd
6: like to just say, um, follow on to the uh, conversation about Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. I, little bit about it, uh, uh, there are a lot of people from Northern Ireland who come to the United States mm-hmm. with Catholics and Protestants, uh, indeed I married one of them, <laughs> and they seem to find it much easier
1: mm-hmm.
6: to get beyond the prejudices while they're here, but as soon as they go back to the province, yep. in traditions in which the favourite. Protestant remedy for the trouble is mm-hmm. to castrate all the Catholics. That's first voiced in sixteen forty in the English Parliament, and I have heard adults say it mm. in mm. Ireland in the nineteen eighties. As soon as you go back into that situation, forget it. Mm-hmm. That might be an interesting control group.
0: That is a fascinating control, control group. Is the right word. Yeah, or comparison group. I think comparison group is uh, comparison. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think it's a really interesting issue and very much along those lines is what led us to focus on these normative influences um, because, exactly and, you know, I've you know, been uh, asked to provide comments on like Seeds of Peace or other types of programs that bring Israeli and Palestinian youth together like for a ca- summer camp in Maine and, you know, and they're like well, you know, they get along great and they're saying goodbye, you know, pen pals and all of this stuff and then it peters out over time Because I think there there aren't enough supports in their local environment to keep that positive feeling going. It's just not... It's so hard. It's so much to ask to have that sustain itself in the context of such a deeply embroiled conflict. Um, And so, yeah, so I think exactly right. I, I, I appreciate that suggestion. It was my understanding, perhaps naively or inappropriately, that most of the Irish that are... In the U.S. are Catholic, and that may just be because I lived in Boston for so many years and i am now in the state of Massachusetts. Be um, <laughs> yeah, because it's like you know, yeah, it it's, it seems very Catholic identified as a community, at least in the Massachusetts context. But but that would be quite interesting to look at that comparison.
6: Comments when I asked a couple of them why this striking change, they said, "Oh, it would be disloyal to talk to them."
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and in fact, one of my colleagues, she's been um, she's, uh, been archiving political murals in Northern Ireland or the north of Ireland and has been doing work with some of the muralists there who, one who's a former IRA prisoner and one who's the son of a Protestant member of Parliament, they've just started painting murals together. Um, and so she's been kind of charting <laughs> this transformation of like being in totally separate communities to now taking a stand to actually paint publicly, like on the Falls Road, um, these joint political murals, um, and seeing how people respond to that, as well as their own experiences in, in, in doing that work. They're actually uh, coming to my current university next month um, to unveil the most recent mural that they've painted together. Uh, oh, golly, I think you might have been next. You mentioned that
1: you have started some initial work on uh, <coughs> visual contact experience through ca- cultural representation.
0: Um, we're basically, we're creating, we're creating storybooks for these children. Um, a lot of times that's a way of incorporating certain messages into the earlier age classrooms. That's an interesting question. Um, For the purpose, so that's uh, a bit far afield from my own personal research. Um, I think anxiety and empathy in particular, there's already been some knowledge components so we're trying to add some anxiety and empathy components in. If it were older populations, like middle schoolers, adolescents, or college students, or full-fledged adults, um, I would also try to include different aspects of knowledge. So rather than knowledge as it's usually been construed as educating someone about the other group, to give people um, more preparedness or strategy orientations about you know how to feel efficacious in interactions with members of other groups, helping them recognize anxiety is a really normal thing. You know, setting up their expectations in a way so that it's not realistic. I think what often happens is people approach interactions, and they're like, oh my god, I felt terrible, I was so anxious, that was so hard, I'm never going to do that again. But if you actually say, well, you know, feeling anxious is entirely natural, and it's not easy, but there's these really wonderful outcomes that can come from it, let's give it a shot, see how it goes. As they're entering that interaction, they're not evaluating their experience in the context of what that relationship means. Instead, they have another place to attribute what they're feeling so that they can hopefully focus it more, a bit more on their interaction. And this is actually some of the more experimental work that I'm doing with students right now, as well as work that we've been doing in partnerships with uh, nonprofits and field settings, is focusing on the different goals that people have as they approach cross-group interactions. And based on so much of the literature, people are so self-focused. They're focused on their own anxieties, how they're going to be treated, how they're going to be perceived and received. And so what we've been doing is giving people instructions and basically saying your goal for the interaction is either a self-focused orientation to focus on how you present yourself to your partner or a more other-focused orientation to focus on learning about your partner, what they think, what, what they stand for as compared to what you think, what you stand for. And what we found both with some like middle school and high school age populations in the field, as well as experimental studies in the lab where we actually code nonverbal behaviors when they interact with somebody, is that those with a more learning goal orientation, either naturally or experimentally manipulated, um, tend to exhibit less anxiety during the interaction as indicated by nonverbals, they fidget less, they maintain more (coughs) eye contact, do less avoidant behavior. And then also in these field studies that, you know, if you ask adolescents um, before they do this like week-long summer camp, you know, if they're learning, if they have these learning goals, that they actually not only report more positive experiences during the camp, but they actually have more positive attitudes afterward or are more committed to future interactions and, and things like that. Yeah. Um,
3: One last question.
1: So this is a kind of a snapshot to, to make the case for longevity studies. Mm-hmm. Palestinian, I started asking families, also an ethnographer, um, I started asking you know, families why was that, and the fact of the matter was that it was too painful for the families as they were approaching army age, well, mm-hmm. and the kids, to think about, you know, what the hell am I going to do, mm-hmm. um, I've made these friendships, I've slept over these kids' houses, mm-hmm. you know, we mm-hmm. cried and danced and laughed and ate together, <coughs> and now I'm going to be in a check. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, what what do we do with the reduction of anxiety and the increase of empathy in contexts like this, where real life, um, you know, kind of explodes our our studies? And, and you know, I mean, we do need to keep studying them. And I applaud you. Mm-hmm. I applaud these, this work. Don't get me wrong. But how do we, you know, account for these kinds of? I
0: I think that is is crucially important. And I think this is where like my perspective on our field is that we, we haven't spent enough time looking at those constant stressors or those constant sources of threat. And not necessarily threat that they're going to hurt us, but that kind of preparatory work, you know, we're living in a conflict zone. And so we might individually be able to forge these relationships, but what are all these other factors that we need to deal with in this context in order to let them grow to fruition? Um, and I don't think as a field we've done that. And it, it's heartbreaking, uh, work that you're describing, but I would hope that through time we could actually, you know, think more about different disciplinary approaches to approaching this, and see are there, you know, are there strategies, are there things in the Israeli Defense Forces that you know you can apply to different types of jobs or different positions? I, you know, those are types of things that are beyond my my skill set or knowledge base. But,
3: Linda, thank you. Thank you. I wanted to bring us to a close before everyone has to drift off to the 1.30 class. Linda's going to be here all afternoon, uh, so if you want to follow up, if you have some more questions. We have a fairly packed schedule, but I know she has time for a few few more if you want to get in. Uh, I'll be interested in all of your feedback on the talk and on this position, so please, uh, you know my email. Linda, I want to thank you very much uh, for coming here.